Hello, everyone. Hi. Um, my name is Bernie Seifert. I'm a social worker, and I work here at the um, Aging Resource, uh, the Centers for Health and Aging, Aging Resource Center, and I also work at NAMI New Hampshire, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, I'm the coordinator for older adult programming there. Um, and the program we're doing today is uh, understanding depression and anxiety in older adults. And uh, what we usually do is have um, people who are either people who are either interested in learning about it for themselves or for someone, a loved one. Um, it's just for information purposes. And we, we're doing this in a very laid-back, casual way. So if you have any questions or uh, comments as we go along. It's not just a classroom thing. I mean, we're, we're here. I'm here to to talk with you as well. Um, so, uh, if, it would be helpful for me if we go around the room. If you could just let me know who you are, and if you want to tell me a little bit more than your name, that's fine. If not, that's okay too. Okay. Well, I'm Susan. Uh, I'm just here to get more information. Uh, you want more information? <laughs> the okay. Yeah. Good. I'm Anne. And hi, Anne. Hi. Um, I am. Actually, uh, Caregiver, so I'm always looking to to learn more mm -hmm. about things that can help my clients. And, okay. Um, okay. Don't like to, I, you know, anything that I've attended here has always been great. Good. Okay. Good. I'm Diane, and I'm like Susan. I'm here just for more information. Diane, you said your name. I'm Magda, M-A-G-D-A, mm -hmm. and I'm here just for some more information. Some more information. Yeah. I like these people who want to learn. I'm Skip, and I'm here to try to help my partner in Canada. Okay, good. In Canada, you said? Yeah, yeah. he lives in Ottawa. Well, depression doesn't, doesn't matter what country you're in. No, no. <laughs> but that's what he is, and I'm down here, and yeah. uh, uh, when he gets bad, yeah. Like to know if you know, so things possibly you things do. that I could possibly do or things mm -hmm. not to do. Okay. Because every right. now and then, and right. Right. I've said some things along the way, and he gets very upset. So, so we're we're waiting right. to hear. Yeah. 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 I think we have um, for Horse Meadow. Uh, could you could you put put it on mute? Thank you. Okay, good. Um, I'm Bridget Rice. I work for Bay Auto Hospice over in Norwich. Um, and we have a fair number of hospice patients that um, have dementia or are going to be suffering from depression and anxiety. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about that. Um, okay. See Thank you. Thank you for coming. And we have one person who just walked in. Yeah, sorry I'm late. My name's Kim Reardon, and I'm an occupational therapist assistant, and I do um, caregiving for care pros. So I work with a lot of people with um, who are elderly. I have some hospice clients. Okay. It was interesting. So the more you know, the better off we are. Right. Okay. All right. And I think we have a few more people at Horse Meadow. Um, and let me know if you can't, if you can, just wave. Can you hear me? I guess, all right, okay. Um, so, so what we're, this,
program is one of six uh, different sessions um, that NAMI New Hampshire offers through a program called Side by Side. Um, so this one particularly is called Understanding Depression and Anxiety in Older Adults. So what we're going to cover today is um, we're going to talk about what is depression. You know, what's the difference between depression and just saying I feel a little down today? Um, what are the symptoms of depression? What are the risk factors? We'll also talk about what's the difference between depression and bipolar disorder. Because people always ask me that is depression the same as bipolar disorder? We'll talk a little bit about anxiety disorder. Um, why treatment is important. Why is it important that we identify whether or not somebody has depression or anxiety and why, why is treatment important. And then we'll also talk about suicide concerns with older adults because um, even though not all older adults who have depression are suicidal, it's not unusual for that to be one of the symptoms and it's important for us to be aware of that um, because we need to, to pay attention to that if that shows up. So uh, when we talk about depression, you know, we, have you heard of the DSM-5, uh, the Diagnostic uh, Statistical Manual, which is used for, di for people who, like psychiatrists or psychologists um, or psychiatric social workers or um, clinical people who work with individuals um, and I diagnose someone if they have a mental illness, they use that manual to come up with a diagnosis. So in that, in that manual, there's a section called affective disorders, so that's the mood disorders. Um, and what, one of the conditions under that um, particular uh, chapter is depression, understanding depression. So we're gonna go over what are the symptoms of depression when somebody, somebody is said to have a major depression disorder or a depressive disorder. What does that mean? What does that mean? How do we know? How do the doctors know whether or not you have depression or somebody you know has depression? Um, and I just want to make it clear that depression, if, when you have depression as a, as a diagnosis, it's a very treatable disorder, okay? It's a very, many people who are treated, most, over 90% of people who get treatment for depression get better. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to identify it when you have a depression and, and get it treated because you can you can get better. Treated with pills. What's that? Treated <laughs> with pills. Sometimes with pills, not all the time, but sometimes pills medica medication can help. Um, medication isn't the only um, form of treatment that people can get. It's also very common, r relatively common for people over 65 to experience some symptoms of depression. But when I say it's common, I don't mean that it's normal. Okay. Being common and being normal are two different things. And depression is not, if you can take anything away from here today, depression is not a normal part of aging, okay? Take that, that's gonna be, uh, if I give you a test, I would have that question on the test. <laughs> but I'm not gonna give you a test. Good. Okay. Um, depression is oftentimes very, uh, it's under-recognized and under-treated in older adults. What, what that means is that oftentimes um, either you know, physicians or family members won't think that some of the symptoms they're seeing that are depression, they won't, they won't think that that's depression. It, it's unrec you know, they don't recognize it as depression. They think it's a normal part of aging. It's not, it's not, okay? 
So depression is not a normal part of aging. Any questions about that? Or An example I use, and I use this story to, to, to bring this point home, is um, any skiers here? Anybody like to ski? Well, so there goes my story. <laughs> we all like stories. Okay. I'll tell you the story. I'll tell you the story anyway. So let's say you have this person who is a very, very good skier. And, um, you know, and, you know, often it's not unusual to hear a story that somebody broke their leg when they went skiing, right? So let's say you're a skier and you, you, you go down the diamond and you break your leg. Um, just because you... It's a not. It's kind of common to have an injury like that when you go skiing. It doesn't mean that it's normal to have a broken leg. It doesn't mean that we can't do anything about the broken leg. You know, we need to think of the same way when we think of older adults who have depression. Even though we understand why they may be feeling depressed, it doesn't mean that it's okay and we just let them live like that. We need to do something about it. You know, and, and that they'll be better. They'll have a better life if we if we can treat the depression. So think of it in that way. So even though you don't ski, you probably still got my, my, my story. Okay. Well, let's just say I tried it once. I ended up in an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> Never okay. went back. All right. I, I saw that little gleam in your eye. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's not, um, it's very important, I think, for us to think about stigma. Do you, do you know what I mean by stigma? Stigma is something when uh, we assume, um, you know, we think the worst of something, or we, we think something can't get better. And in our society, we, you know, there's a few reasons why there's a stigma attached to, to depression. And, um, and ageism is one form of stigma. You know, what ages, ageism is, is when someone assumes that just because somebody is older, you know, they might be confused, or they might be depressed, or they, you know, they're, they're no good, or they, they, they're, they're not thinking clearly. Well, we know that that's not true. As you get older, uh, we can't assume that everybody's confused and everybody has a memory problem and everybody. So we, we need to get beyond that. Um, and provider training limitations and attitudes, we've come a long way. I mean, when I think of how we were 30 years ago when I first started working as a social worker and where we are today, a lot of our providers, and when I say providers, I mean, I think some of we have providers here in the room. You know, we have medical doctors, uh, occupational therapists, physical therapists, social workers. You know, oftentimes we need to remind them um, that, you know, just because somebody is an older adult, you know, they still deserve treatment and they still deserve to have a better life, right? Um, so sometimes that's our, we need to educate to make sure that the providers are aware of that. I have to say that we've come, we have come a long way. I mean, I don't know, you're, you're in the field. Would you say that we're more interested in geriatrics and um, um, the, the, the quality of life for older adults more than ever? I had a question. Um, like, so somebody has um, like a situational depress depression period mm -hmm. where they have a loss, mm -hmm. they had a stroke, mm -hmm. or they broke a bone. How or their long, house got burned. Or right. <laughs> experienced the major loss. What yeah. is that? Time frame where you would expect a person to be it no longer is situational where it's extended over a period of time so it does manifest into a real depression. Yeah. What, I, what I would call that is like complicated what we call complicated grief 
that turns complicated into grief. Yeah, that goes from you know grief. It, it's important for people to experience grief when they've they've experienced a loss. Right. To allow themselves to feel mm -hmm. the loss. We can't expect everybody to be happy all of the time, right? And if you don't have a reaction to a major loss in your life, then something's not clicking there. So it's 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 sometimes it's healthy to have experience grief, to experience the, the sense of loss. But if it gets to the point, for instance, where someone is not sleeping mm -hmm. well, they're not eating anymore, they're having a hard time functioning. I mean, I usually we say you can't diagnose someone with a major depression unless they've they've had the symptoms for at least two weeks or longer. Mm -hmm. So, um, so sometimes we, you know, we use that. But if it gets to the point where they're not able to function and it becomes what we call <coughs> complicated grief that then turns into what we call depression, um, you know, that's when we need to think about, we need some type of treatment, we need to address this. Um, so it's kind of a, a balance where you need to allow people to grieve, you need to allow them to have that feeling. Because if, if they don't go through that grief process, it'll come back later. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if I, if I answered your... Yeah, two weeks seemed a little short, but... Two, it does seem a little short, but you know, we're not, we, not going to put somebody in a hospital immediately. I mean, we, we just make sure that somebody is safe and okay and, right. and, uh, and keep an eye on it. Um, everybody grieves in a very different way, and it might take someone a little longer to go through it. And sometimes just having supportive counseling can be helpful to get them through that process or just having a supportive environment where you have people around you that are supportive. So. Can I just touch on something you said about um, I'm sorry, I have a cold too, so if you can't hear me, just okay. tell me. Um, from a provider aspect, I think um, the care that we provide is unique in that all of our patients and families are seen by a nurse, and we also offer um, a medical social worker as well as a spiritual counselor. So we're not just helping support the patient in a very clinical sense of what's going on, we're also helping to support that quality of life. Um, you know, whether it's the client directly that needs a little bit more help or it's a patient, I mean, a spouse or a caregiver. Um, so I think that we've come a long way um, in that aspect. Yeah, and that and and the hospice care is a very specialized and um, an important uh, type of care, I think, in our in our society and in our yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Um, so family communication rules. Um, how many of you have a family that's so open and you talk about everything and you talk open? <laughs> right. So it's not unusual, right? I think I, I, I know, for instance, when I was growing up in my own life, you know, we had people around us who may have been experiencing depression, but we, we'd say, you know, they're like, you know, they're not feeling too well, rather than coming out and talking about it. So I think that's kind of our part of the stigma attached to having depression is, you know, you don't talk about it or, and it, it's not really, uh, it's, it's actually a very healthy thing to be out in the open and to talk about it. Um, and to be looking for it. And it's not unusual for certain families or certain groups of people to not um, be so open about it. So, you know, so, so taking a look at how your own values, your own family, your, you know, your, how, your val how your family 
and your environment when you were growing up or even now, um, how the rules um, you know, can be different. So it's kind of a challenge sometimes. Uh, mental health treatment evolution, by that I mean, you know, when I started working as a social worker 30 years ago, I would work with older adults and they'd say, oh my God, don't, you know, if they'd see me coming to the door, they'd go, I don't want to go to Concord. <laughs> I don't want to go, to, you know, but now I think we've come, we've really evolved where mental health treatment doesn't necessarily mean you have to get locked up. Um, and that mental health treatment doesn't mean necessarily that you can't function. As a matter of fact, I think our society is, we've evolved to the situation where we see mental health um, support and help more as a strength. Um, we still have a way to go there, but it, it is evolving. Um, and then self-stigma. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with a person, you know, in their 80s and 90s who don't think they deserve the treatment or don't think that you, we should be wasting time with them. That's called self-stigma. That's when you're assuming that you're not worth the, the um, help or the support. And sometimes we need to work with that. If you have a family member, for instance, who's depressed, you know, you need to sometimes convince them that they deserve to get treatment and they deserve to get support. So, does this ring a bell? Any of these ring a bell for anybody? Mm -hmm. That's I have nothing. <laughs> You're not even going to go there, huh? Okay. It's, but it's kind of touching a nerve, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> Okay, so sometimes depression can be overlooked by caregivers and medical providers. And that's not done intentionally. It's not done like, oh, I'm, I'm just gonna ignore that. Sometimes it's just that they're not, you know, they, they're, not, they're either not looking for it or what they see, they're assuming is something else. They're assuming that somebody is, um, you know, just getting old, when really there is a, a situation there that can't, you can do something about. Um, sometimes depression can be associated with other medical problems. An example is, um, if you do you know someone who's had open heart surgery? Mm -hmm. of you? Um, it's not unusual for someone who has had open heart surgery. About 50% of those individuals experience depression. Um, and I, I'm not telling you that so that you can get depressed about that, but it's more like, okay, if we know if somebody has um, heart condition and has experienced open heart surgery, we need to keep our antennas up and, and keep our eye out to make sure that depressive symptoms don't take over. Um, it's, sometimes depression can diminish someone's ability to recover from illness. What I mean by that, let's say you have uh, you've broken a hip and, and you're also depressed. The depression can get in the way of getting better from that hip, and you know, uh, the, it takes away from the motivation to get through the physical therapy, for instance. Um, so depression sometimes makes you know, makes uh, not only can a medical condition make a depression worse, but depression can make a medical. So they kind of like act on each other. So it's important for us to to be aware of that. Depression can increase the risk of suicide. Um, because one of the one of the symptoms of depression sometimes is people thinking you know having suicidal thoughts not all the time but in in the situations where there are is suicidal thoughts it increases that person risk that person's risk of suicide um, and it also impairs the person's ability to function independently I know many times I've when I've um, uh, 
uh, like if you have an 80 year old woman here who has a lot of medical conditions in addition to those medical conditions has depression and you have an 80 year old woman here on this side who has the same medical conditions but doesn't have depression the chances of the one with depression of needing to go for, to a nursing home, for instance, um, more quickly than, than the one that doesn't have depression is higher. So oftentimes what I, when I've worked with adults um, and I've done home visits, I'll, I'll say, you know, we need to treat your depression. One of your goals is you want to stay home independent. You want to remain independent. If, that's, if you want me to help you do that, then we need to help. We need to address this depression so that you will be able to stay independent. Uh, can also contribute to poor health outcomes. I mean, again, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, um, um, you know, the person who has had the broken hip. You know, if we don't treat the depression, then it's going to be harder for them to get better. It can cause suffering and family disruption. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm from a large family. We have had some depression in the family. It does affect the whole family. It does, you know, so it, it's, if, if, and now that's another reason why we need to treat it. It can inhibit the person's ability to, to for successful aging. Yeah. If, um, you know, they've done studies on, on this, that if you have, if you ask many, many um, hundreds of older adults who, when you ask them and they feel like they've aged successfully, what do you think the common denominator is for those individuals? Like, what is, what is it that makes people feel like they're aging successfully? Any, any thoughts about that? I would say family and community supports. You've got it, like relationships, being, being connected. Um, it's not necessarily physical health. It's not necessarily being able to ambulate, you know. You know, um, it's ha being connected with other individuals. Well, how about if you're a loner? If you've never, if you've always been a loner, <laughs> then you're not going to become a social butterfly. <laughs> we don't expect you to change. But if you, uh, you know, if you, you know, worked or you've been connected with other people in your younger years, that needs to continue in your later years in order for you to feel like you're aging successfully, to feel better about your life. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, it's hard to go from being so connected to just being isolated. Um, so isolation is not a good thing for older adults, for anybody actually, any human being. Um, and depression can also last for years if it's not treated. Um, I remember very, I, whenever I, I see this, I think of this one case where I was doing a home visit and it was an older woman in her 70s um, and her two daughters were at home and I, I met with a woman and I you know, talked with her and got some information. Um, and I talked to the daughters and said, you know, I think you know, your mother has depression. And they said, no, mom, she doesn't have depression. She's been like this for years. <laughs> I said, well, she's been like this for years. <laughs> so it is possible. Um, and in that particular case, you know what? She was treated for her depression. She got better. And the daughter said, wow. We got our mother back. You know, this is how we remember her when we were younger, but we hadn't seen that in years. So it is possible for depression to exist, you know, for, for years. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot your first name. Bernie. Bernie. Yeah. Um, I d growing up in a large Italian family, um, I grew up with my <coughs> grandfather and um, one of my great uncles right near each other. My grandfather and 
three or four of his brothers were all in World War II, but they all had such different experiences. And I just, I loved soaking up their stories mm -hmm. when I was History, little. And, uh -huh. um, I kind of idolized that generation. <coughs> but um, I had one great uncle who just had the worst experiences, was a POW, and the remainder of his life was very colored by those wartime experiences, whereas some of the other brothers, it didn't. And it just, I don't know, it, I, because a large part of the the older adults, I guess we're referring to now in their 80s and 90s are kind of the last remaining piece of that generation. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if going through that experience of like maybe World War II and mm -hmm. the surrounding times, has it can also be an influence it's on looking certainly. at this particular population. <coughs> Most certainly, I mean, in the same way, I mean, you've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and it's not uncommon, um, <coughs> excuse me, for people who experience some traumatic, whether it's war or whether it's, um, you know, abuse or, <coughs> or any type of traumatic experiences, to, for it to come back later um, and, and kind of pop, pop up and have an effect on that person's, um, you know, moods and ability to, to function. Um, but definitely, um, I mean, it, 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 can be the it can be related to depression, it can be related to what we call PTSD. Um, so that is what is the difference point. between the two? <coughs> depression is, we're going to go over the symptoms of depression. It's not unusual for someone, post-traumatic stress disorders, when you're, when you, um, because of an experience you've had, uh, and it could be a very, very clear experience or, or more of a, of a general fear, it's affecting the way you're functioning now uh, because you're reliving part of those, um, those of those past trauma, traumatic experiences. It's affecting the way you interact with people. You might, someone with PTSD, for instance, let's say someone's been in the war, um, and um, you know, they, they become very hypervigilant sometimes when they're in a crowd or when they're in a group. Um, they don't feel you know, comfortable or at ease. Um, or they may, for instance, one of the most common ones is, you know, there's a, back, a, a car backfires, you know, they might, it might bring them back to the war when they, and, you know, they, they think it's a, uh, a gun or, um, so, so that's, that's very, the symptoms are related to a past trauma. It's not unusual for someone who has PTSD to experience depression, to have symptoms of depression, but they're really two different symptoms. So you, so you can have coexisting conditions as well. So uh, depression treatment is critical because, um, you know, if you treat it, you can have a more positive reaction to medical care for other things. It also, it's, you know, it's, it makes you, it's, it's a better, it's a quality of life, good mental health. Um, you know, we all want to be happier and have a, have a more positive experience in our life. Um, depression can be associated with, um, sorry, there we go poor physical recovery, for instance, with hip fractures, you know, with heart conditions, you know, with cancer. 
Uh, as another example, you know, you're, it affects your immune system, so you're more apt to be able to fight off some of these um, conditions or, or respond to treatment better if, if you're not depressed. So there are different types of depression. What, you know, one of the ones we talk about most, most often is what we call major depression. Um, but there's other, other types of depression called minor depression um, or something called chronic depression. It used to be, the name for that used to be dysthymia, but now the new name for the DSM-5 is uh, called chronic depression. It's also an adjustment disorder with depressed mood. That's another type of disorder. Essentially, all of these, I mean, I, you, you can call whatever condition you may be experiencing out of, uh, out of um, these four, it's still important to address the situation. And um, a major depression is not necessarily worse than a minor depression because for some people who experience minor depression, it's, it's as debilitating for them as you know, someone else may be experiencing with major. And we're going to talk about what are the differences between these. So in order, when somebody is diagnosed with major depression, what does that mean? Well, if you take a look at all of these symptoms, in order to be diagnosed with major depression, you have to experience at least five from this list, at least five, so it could be five or more, for a period of at least two weeks or, or longer, okay? Um, so let me go over the list of the, of the symptoms. One is depressed mood most of the time. So. Someone will say that they have a depressed, they're feeling down and depressed. Um, that, that's probably the most common and what we associate most with, with depression. It's also a loss of uh, interest or pleasure in activities. What I mean by that is, I mean, for instance, if you are, you are a knitter and all of a sudden you have arthritis in your hands and you can't knit anymore, well, you're not doing that activity anymore, but it's not necessarily because you don't have that interest, uh, but it's because you physically Know, it's harder for you to do. But if all of a sudden you stop knitting because for no reason other than you're just not interested anymore, and this is something you've done forever and ever, or someone who's read the paper cover to cover every day of their life and all of a sudden they're not interested in, in the news anymore, or not interested in hanging out with your grandkids anymore, you know, it doesn't give you that pleasure. Um, you know, those are examples of like loss of pleasure in something that typically gives you pleasure. Uh, disturbed sleep, so just, it could be you're sleeping too much. I had one woman who was sleeping 23 hours out of 24 hours a day. That's a major, <laughs> and what we call that was a cat. What we call a catatonic depression, where the, you know she got very, she was just very, very uh, completely secluded. Um, but more often than not, with older adults, oftentimes the sleep disturbance is more the lack of sleep. They have a hard time. It's so, insomnia. They have a hard time sleeping. Uh, another uh, important sign, too, is if somebody, if you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning every day and don't get back to sleep, that early morning awakening and can't get back to sleep, that's another not pretty common, too, that we see in older adults. Um, I, I have a story about that. We had, uh, when I was doing home visits, we were doing a home visit <coughs> with an older man who was in his mid-80s and um, it was, uh, was uh, with a psychiatrist we were visiting. and. The um, man said, and so the psychiatrist was asking, so how's your sleeping? Like, what time do you wake up? He goes, I wake up at 2 o'clock every morning. So the psychiatrist was like, mm, okay. What time he went to sleep? <laughs> right. So the son peered his head around the corner and said, Dad, tell him what time you go to sleep. 
oh, I go to sleep at five o'clock. Oh, God. <laughs> so he was sleeping eight hours, it's just his whole clock is off. <laughs> so in his case, it wasn't sleep disturbance other than the, the, the fact that his clock was off. Um, so weight loss or gain is another sign potentially of, of uh, depression. It might be loss of appetite. You know, I remember many times I'd see, uh, do a home visit with somebody um, who looked like they might have lost weight, and I said, um, so, you know, how's your appetite? And they'd say, oh, it's good. I just don't feel like eating anymore. <laughs> so, oh, so, I, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's, it's, you know, the appetite goes away, or and it's not associated with a medical condition, you know. That, like, for instance, you know, sometimes when people have cancer, they, their, their appetite, you know, their medication they're taking, they're not eating as much. That's not really related to depression. But if all of a sudden your appetite goes, and, or, or you, you start filling yourself a lot of times, up and if you eat and eat and eat, eat, and, eat, eat and eat because and you're trying to you don't, but you don't put any weight well that's probably a f something physical might be going on with that you know if 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 there's a change in how much you eat and you're losing still losing weight i mean i would have that checked out and that doesn't happen to me for any happened before yeah it's normal now yeah okay uh fatigue or lack of energy and by that I mean, you know, you might be sleeping a normal amount of hours, but you're still feeling tired. Like there's no reason for you to feel tired. That's what that fatigue feels like when people are depressed. And it's really hard for family members to understand that because you see someone and you say, they have no reason to be tired. Come on, get moving. But someone with depression, it just, they just can't get out of their own way. You know, and they can't, they don't, don't have the energy. Um, feeling of a worthlessness or extreme guilt. And that's a situation where, again, that's very difficult for family members to understand because the person might be feeling guilty that they're, they're, they're a burden on you. Um, and you're the family member just saying, oh, please don't, you know, don't worry about that. But it doesn't make sense that they're worried about it. So it's kind of like that unexplained or um, guilt or you know, feeling. Difficulties with concentration or decision making. And this is where sometimes it gets confused with uh, with a memory problem, you know, you think somebody has dementia when really, you know, it's harder for them to concentrate. So the, the information is just not going in the brain um, because they, they have a lack of concentration. Decision making. I mean, it might be hard for someone who has um, depression to make a decision of what they're going to have for breakfast or what they're going to wear or what they're going to do today. Every decision is this major, major decision. And that, again, is also very difficult for family members to understand. Noticeable restlessness, agitation, or, uh, or slow movement. So it's either very, very agitated, you might have someone who just can't sit still, or someone who just can't get moving, <laughs> one or the other. Um, so as you can see, there's a lot of like, you know, either extreme this way or extreme that way. Um, and frequent thoughts of death or suicide. Again, not everybody who has depression experiences this, but some people do. And that's, that's, the one, we, that's one of them that we need to be con extra concerned about. Make sure that somebody is safe. Um, so uh, so we have to have at least five of these symptoms. And one thing um, that I will note that older adults oftentimes will have just five of these. Whereas if you have younger adults who are depressed, they're more often than not going to experience many, many of these. 
Um, it just so, and that's another potential reason why depression goes unnoticed with older adults because they're not experiencing all of these symptoms at once. Okay. Any questions or comments so far? Okay. Just going to keep track of the time here. So what's the difference then between major depression and minor depression? Well, this slide here will, will um, kind of outlines it. So major depression, you have to have at least five of those symptoms. For minor depression, either two, three, or four of them. So you're having, experiencing less of the symptoms. It doesn't mean, again, that it's not a debilitating. You know, it can really do a number on you, <laughs> even if you have two or three or four of those symptoms, okay? Uh, so persistent depressive disorder, which is what we call dysthymia disorder, again, the number of symptoms is less than major depression. It's two or three or four of those symptoms. Um, the duration is at least two weeks for major depression. Um, at least for minor depression, at least two weeks, but less than two years. For the dysthymia or the persistent depression, it has to be for more than two years. So, so the woman I was telling you about, that uh, the daughter said, no, that she's not depressed, she's, all, she's been like this for years. She had what we call, at the time, dysthymia. She, she was, um, she had a, a persistent depressive disorder. Again, you can still treat that. It does take a little bit longer to treat, oftentimes, people who've been depressed for a long time to get them out of that, but, but it's possible. Okay. So older adults, like I said before, so oftentimes will display fewer symptoms, but this, in order for them, if, if we say somebody has a major depressive disorder, they still have to have five of those, what, no matter what age, whether they're eight years old or whether they're 88 years old. Um, they still have, for it to be called major depression, they still have to have at least five of those symptoms. And oftentimes, older adults will, will it's not unusual for them to complain of physical problems when they're depressed. We had one gentleman who would come to the clinic and he'd say, um, you know, my stomach hurts. He'd complain of his stomach hurting and, you know, pain in his joints. And, um, and he did have depression. He was treated for the depression. You know, he came back a few months later and I said, well, how's your stomach feeling? He said, what's wrong with my stomach? I'm fine. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes physical symptoms like get exacerbated, get worse when you're depressed. So they, they seem worse. You focus more on your, your physical problems. Um, so, and again, another reason why depression often gets uh, overlooked, you go to the doctor and you complain of the physical problems and they're gonna look, well, find a reason for the physical problems um, when sometimes it can be associated with, or they can be worsened by the depression. Um, this is, um, have any of you ever heard of Mary Ellen Copeland? She's an older uh, woman who lives in Vermont. Um, she's still around today. She's written a few books on depression and bipolar disorder. She herself, and she's done many talks about this, has a, a bipolar disorder. And um, so she will help people um, sort of take control when they have depression or when they have a disorder, um, when they get depression, they get better. She'll say, okay, you need to make a plan so that when the depression comes back, if it comes back, you need to have things in order so that you're more in control of, of decision making. So there's a, she has a few uh, workbooks. Um, I mean, you can Google her and, and see what she has written a few, a few books to help people who have depression or bipolar disorder 
um, to sort of take control of their of their life. So I would highly recommend her as a as a resource for books. Okay, so what's the difference between major to what we call major depression and bipolar disorder? Um, another word for bipolar disorder is what used to be called manic depression. Is that something? Are you familiar with that term? Yeah. So it's the same thing as bipolar disorder and manic depression, same thing. Um, and for bipolar disorder, um, it's not as common. Like for instance, depression, in, in, when we look at the whole population, about 20% of the population will experience some symptoms of depression at some point in their life. Bipolar disorder is a much less, much fewer people experience bipolar disorder. It's more like one to two percent of the population. Uh, but, it, but in order to be diagnosed with a bipolar disorder, you have to have experienced at least one episode of major depression, and we just talked what those symptoms are, and then one episode, at least one episode of, a, of mania or manic. Uh, episode, um, and it usually it's not unusual for bipolar disorder to show its face like late, uh, late uh, adolescence, early adulthood. That's kind of when the symptoms start. It's not unusual for someone to be diagnosed a little later, like in their late twenties, early thirties, because you know that oftentimes the symptoms <coughs> may be. Um, they might think, well, it's called, called, it's because of a substance abuse, or they might not be, uh, they might be hyperactive, or, um, and it, it's not until they actually go through a few phases where they're like, wait a minute, there's a pattern here, something's going on. Um, or they never sought treatment, you know, early on. Is that hereditary? It's, um, it's not unusual to see in, in some, some families, it's more common in certain families. Um, but if you have, you know, one of your parents that has manic depression or a bipolar disorder, you know, you're at a higher risk of having it. It doesn't mean you will have it. And even though your parents don't have it, doesn't mean you won't have it. Right. So it's, it, it tends to be more common in some families. Um, so that, so it's, you know, it, it's that way. It's a, it's a combination. Um, Episodes can be very frequent, like some people have, you know, several episodes of mania or several episodes of depression, um, and sometimes for some people it's only one or two episodes, and then, they, you know, it doesn't show up again. So it's very, very different um, for different people. Any questions or? Uh, some of the symptoms of, of mania, or ma the manic phase, is um, exaggerated self-esteem or self-confidence. So, so when someone's in a manic state, they, they're, they're overconfident. They think that they're, they have superpowers. What, what's that? I said superpowers. Superpowers, yeah, superman, superpowers. Um, oftentimes they'll have uh, a decreased need for sleep. I've seen a situation where someone has literally not slept for five or six days in a row, no sleep at all. And when you talk with them, you don't, they don't look tired, you know, they're very high energy. Uh, very talkative, rapid speech is not nice unusual. In. Yeah, it would be nice to <laughs> I'd love to have a day yeah. without. Yeah. Uh, racing thoughts. Um, you know, they, they'll they'll say that they feel like their their thoughts are running away from them, like they, they're going too fast. The, uh, people will uh, often do, you know, reckless behavior. It's not unusual for them to get in a car and drive, you know, hundred miles an hour and 
put themselves at risk and think that they're not at risk. You know, they feel like they're high energy. Well, so if you like to drive fast, you drive fast. If you want to be like a turtle, then you drive like a turtle. I didn't, I didn't know what you said. If you, have to, if you like to drive fast, I feel like you drive, drive yeah. fast. If you want to be like a little turtle, you want to be like a stand. I'm not about that. I have a left foot, but it has been always. From the time I was a child, I just cannot think of how we're going less than 80 miles an hour. Wow. So, and so I, it's, it's and, I, and it hasn't stopped. And I'd say I have to stop because I have a lacoma for years. Uh -huh. and, and right. Sometimes you cannot see what is the other side. Well, sometimes it, you know, sometimes if it's not, if it's not your, your your typical mode, and all of a sudden you start. I mean, those are the things to be careful about. It's not unusual too for people who's in a manic. Episode to experience um, delusional beliefs, and you know what delusions are when you're you're having certain beliefs that aren't based on reality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might think somebody is out to get you. You know, you might have some feelings of paranoia um, that's not really based on reality. Um, you know, one of the um, let me go back. I'm gonna go back to one of the. I had. I used to have a. Co-worker who had manic depression or bipolar disorder, we call it, um, and he. Um, this is how he described it to me, um, and it made me understand a little bit better how somebody who has that disorder how they feel. He said, you know, he had all, many episodes of depression. He get very, very depressed, um, and he said, "It's Bernie. It's like this. You know, when you you get in a car and you try to start your car and it doesn't start." can't get going and you really want to get going but you can't get the, the car started and then all of a sudden one day you start the car and it starts and you start driving and it's like whoa it feels good to be driving and then you get up on a hill and you're like wow I'm, I'm doing I'm feeling better and then you start going <coughs> down the hill it's like wow this is fun I'm going really fast and all of a sudden you realize you don't have any brakes and you're <laughs> continuing to go down the hill and that's how he described you know, when he was depressed, he, he wanted to get going, he couldn't get going. When he was in a manic phase, when he was starting, it felt really good. It's like, finally, I'm go you know, I've got energy, and then it got away from him. Um, and that oftentimes is one of the issues that people with a manic depression, you know, it, it's very hard for them to accept treatment, especially early on in this, in this because you know, the, the manic phase feels good. You know, they've got energy. They're, they're, you know, they've got, they're going. And they've had these depressions, um, depressive episodes. Um, so, and people are telling them they need to take a pill to stop the energy. And they're like, no, this is, feels good. And it's not until you kind of crash and burn a few times to realize I really, really need to take the medication and I need to take care of myself. So, so just to, sometimes it's hard to understand what people, um, maybe feeling and why they're not accepting treatment so but understanding what it might be feeling like for them makes it a little easier for us to understand that so anxiety disorders are also um, something that's um, not unusual in older adults or any any individual for both depression and anxiety disorder that can happen in any age I just want to make that clear okay anybody if you've lived till you're 90 years old and you've never had depression you're not immune. <laughs> or if you've never had anxiety disorder, I mean, it, it can hit you any time in your life. Okay, just, just be, let's, I just wanted to make that clear. And there are different types of anxiety disorders. There's, you know, phobic 
uh, phobias where you have a fear of something, um, and sometimes it's, it's an unusual, you know, you, you know, it doesn't make, seem to make sense, but it, it really does affect your ability. For instance, some people, you know, can't, can't go over bridges, you know, they have this extreme fear and it'll stop them from actually going over a bridge or go, you know, they'll, they'll make a long way around so that they don't have to go on the bridge. So, um, so there are many different types of phobias. Obsessive compulsive disorders is when you, you know, you have the need um, to repeatedly do certain <coughs> behaviors over and over again. Um, and again, when you talk to someone who has an anxiety, one of these types of anxiety disorders, They'll say to you, "It doesn't make sense. I don't. I, I, it doesn't make sense for me to be feeling this way, but it's stopping me from being able to work or being able to function." Um, panic disorders. You know, people oftentimes with, who experience a panic attack, uh, well, it'll feel like you're having a heart attack. You know, it oftentimes will get you into the emergency room if you want to make sure that you're not experiencing a physical, a, a real, a real medical, um, heart-related type of a disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Like in the new DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, for the, the one that just came out last year, or like two, almost two years ago now, PTSD is no longer under anxiety disorders. It's like a whole category all by itself. Um, we've done a lot of um, work around PTSD, <coughs> post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and it now sort of like is a standalone type of a disorder. So some of the symptoms for um, anxiety, if, again, you don't have to experience all of these, but these are often uh, related to someone who's an anxiety disorder, is unexplained fear or feeling of dread or panic, restlessness or feeling on edge. You know, someone will tell you that they're kind of, they can't relax. <laughs> um, irritability. And some of these are also, can also be related to depression. So some of these symptoms can be depression, some, some of them can be anxiety disorder. It's also not unusual for someone who has major depression to also experience, not everybody, but it, it's possible to have both of the conditions. Um, disturbed sleep, difficulty falling or staying asleep, or restless, unsatisfying sleep. Um, headaches, muscle tension or pain, stomach ache or diarrhea, chills or hot flashes, um, difficulty concentrating, again, this is also, you know, if you'll notice that some of these symptoms, this uh, the depressive symptom as well. Loss of energy, easily fatigued, shaking, trembling, or hand wringing, you know, somebody can't sit still, racing or pounding heart, uh, rapid breathing, chest pain, so people actually often get the physical, physical feeling, constant worry, fears of going crazy or dying, or preoccupation with relationships and conversations with others. Um, and oftentimes, when you have somebody who has an anxiety disorder, sometimes <coughs> they'll, you know, get on a, on a certain topic and they can't let go of it. Have you ever talked to somebody like that where they can't they can't? I don't let notice it go? any like weeping, unusual weeping. Um, I mean, unless it's someone, for instance, if somebody's having a panic attack, sometimes they will cry. That, that we, yeah, we, that, inappropriate weeping would be a panic reaction to a panic situation. I guess I would relate um, 
more as a, as a side effect of their, their reaction to the feeling panicky, and they react to it by weep, by crying. But it's not really, you know, oftentimes you'll think tearfulness more associated with depression. Um, but I've seen people who've had, in the middle of a panic attack, will start crying um, because they feel like they're not in control. And does that answer your question? Yeah, I just have one woman who just weeps over very inappropriate mm -hmm. events. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it's just not Maybe she normal. has a lot of things inside that she doesn't want to tell anybody. Mm, no, she just, it could be anything. It could be a new person coming in. It could mm -hmm. be waking up at night. Um, and some, pe some people are very emotional. Um, and it might be, you know, the emotional part of the brain is mm -hmm. more, more active. Um, it's not unusual, for instance, who's someone who's experienced a stroke to... No, she hasn't had that. No, okay. So, again, the, depending on what part of the brain the stroke's affected can affect the person's emotions. She calls them pity parties, so she's obviously has had them yeah. all her life. Yeah. Um, so, which makes me think that she has an anxiety disorder, but... And maybe that's her way of react re yeah. reacting. Um, there are uh, different types of treatment available. Um, you know, one is you know talk therapy, what we call what I call talk therapy, which it could be called counseling or psychotherapy, where you're meeting individually with a counselor. And there are different types of um, of um, individual counseling. And the, there's not one that's necessarily better than the other for individuals. I think as long as the person is responding well to the treatment. Um, it's important for that person who is meeting with a counselor to feel comfortable with that counselor and to feel comfortable with their treatment. So, you know, there are different approaches. Like, for instance, an example is problem-solving therapy, which is actually, studies have shown that that oftentimes works very well with older adults, where it's usually a very brief um, treatment where, you know, you've got six, seven, or eight sessions and you focus on, you know, what you address what you want to do for your goal, where you want to be, what, what, what is, what's important to you, and how do you achieve that and work towards achieving those goals. So you focus on, you know, the future. Uh, with cognitive behavioral, you're understanding more why you behave the way you do. You look more at um, understanding uh, what makes you tick, <laughs> in other words. Um, so certain people respond better to some types of treatment, or but I think what's more important or as important is the relationship with the counselor, feeling comfortable with the counselor. Oftentimes, um, and you said a little while ago, sometimes a pill helps. Well, sometimes medication can be helpful, not all the time. Um, so sometimes it's important to have the, the talk therapy, sometimes it's important to have the pill, and sometimes you need both. I mean, not, not all the time. Um, if, if I find someone who is not sleeping and not eating, um, it's kind of hard to sit down and do talk therapy with someone if they're experiencing all of these physical, um, these physical symptoms are getting in the way. So sometimes even taking medication to give you, to get you beyond, you know, the, the insomnia or the loss of appetite. Um, so that you're functioning better and then are more able to respond to the talk therapy. So sometimes the two of them can be helpful together. 
Um, with older adults, one of the things we need to be careful about with medication is you know, if they're on other medications, um, and an older body responds sometimes differently than a younger body to medication. So um, oftentimes a psychiatrist or medical or, uh, nurse practitioners or physicians will start very, on very, very low dosage for uh, antidepressants for older adults. Um, I, would, I would highly recommend if you're involved with that to, to talk with the physician about starting at a very low dose. Older adults, you know, your 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 um, you know your body doesn't process as easily as a younger a younger body. What happens when you've been taking a medication for years to sleep? To sleep, uh -huh. yes. I've been taking Rosepan for another change of it. You know, I've been taking it for the last ten years. My psychiatrist gave it to me many years ago, and then I went out for a long, long time. Then I started, I couldn't sleep, and then I started taking Rosepan, it's the only thing that makes me to work sleep. I think it, w one thing and I would recommend is you need to work with your well, my prescriber. <coughs> my, my general practitioner, she is upset that I'm taking four milligrams of Rosepan, she thinks it's too much. Mm -hmm. And I prescribe, because I don't, I don't, I don't do anything, I think I just, <coughs> just, I'm so used to it, then sometimes those well, That happens, yeah, because sometimes, Sometimes and I'm not medication. asking her to give me anything else. I want to stay in my little family to leave me alone with that. Yeah. But she wants me to take something else. And that other thing that makes me dizzy. And it's important, I think, to talk, just have a conversation else. and to figure out, you know, why, why is she recommending you stop? And then if she does, you need to work with her on, on sort of tapering off. Mm -hmm. um, if it's, whether or not it's going to be replaced with something else or whether replaced with nothing, you can't just stop cooking. I don't take pills. You yeah. see, like they told me I had uh, diabetes, but I control diabetes by no medication. Just for the last five years, I just have my good diet that I have and I eat very well, and my diabetes is fine. It's 94, 96, 102, 117 is the highest. Or maybe sometimes if I eat a big piece of chocolate cake before I go to bed. Well, that's not then I have None of us would sleep with that. <laughs> then <laughs> then, then you I really need your medication. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. I think so it's important to really work with your doctor. I need to doctor. talk to her because I'm yeah. supposed to have a physical. Yeah, you need to talk with directly with and, and work yeah. with them. Yeah. Uh, so medications is another, um, you know, we, we talk about talk therapy, medication sometimes can be helpful. Um, you know, there are older antidepressants and there are newer ones. Mm -hmm. And you know, we used to say, well, the newer ones have less side effects. You know what? They don't. They, they have, have different, exactly the same they have thing. different side effects. So um, all, you know, all medications will have some form of side effects. So, um, and sometimes you will have, the doctor will take a look and see, try to make the side effect work in your favor. For instance, if one of the medications tends to make you drowsy and you're having a hard time sleeping, then you probably would, <laughs> you know, you'll have the side effect work in your favor, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, but all, all medications, you know, do have side effects. Uh, <coughs> and some of them are, are different in different people and some of them are more, you know, so, so it's just important to know that and to try to work with them. Um, side effects can vary. Uh, about 65 to 80 percent of the people will respond to the first antidepressant mm. that's tried. That means that 35 percent to 20 percent of the people 
they'll need to try something different. Um, so, you know, so it's not unusual. You know, most of the time it works, but sometimes you need to change it. And again, the, the, the key here is you need to, you know, either jot down what you're feeling, uh, you need to communicate with the prescriber and work with them to, to try to find something that, that, that works. Uh, older adults may need a, a, a lower dosage, so you start very, very low. Uh, and the doctor should also be aware, or the prescriber needs to be aware of all the medications that you're taking, whether it's over-the-counter or whether it's herbal medications. You know, even though you're taking herbal medications that are over-the-counter, it doesn't mean that it doesn't, it may not have side effects with some of the medications that are prescribed. So, um, all honesty, put it all on the table. <laughs> you know, put, be honest and, and, and put it all on the table. And it, um, alcohol can also sometimes have an effect. So you need to be honest about that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be drinking if you're on medication, but the doctor needs to be aware of that and you might need to have to reduce um, the, because uh, alcohol, for instance, mixed with some of the anti-anxiety medications will like triple that, that medication's effect. So, you know, it's important to, to be aware of that. Um, some other types of treatment, something called you know, partial hospitalization is when you go in for the day for treatment. So you're not going in and staying at the hospital, but you're going in for the day and then going, uh, going back home at night. Or hospitalization. I have to say that uh, hospitalization is used less frequently today than it used to be. There's um, you know, more medications available, and there's really a push to try to get people to um, get treatment in their regular environment, you know, where they're, they're used to. Because it's one thing to go to the hospital for three day, weeks and then you go back home, you have to relearn how to, how to function at home. So we only um, use hospitalization when it's absolutely necessary for that person's safety or if they have other uh, medical things going on at the same time um, or if suicide risk is very, very high, you need to keep, keep, keep an eye on someone. Um, so that, that's, it's not as off used as often as it used to be. So what can the caregiver do? Um, you know, for instance, if it's a loved one that you're concerned about that has depression, uh, you know, it's important for you to be involved as you recognize the symptoms and describe what you see. So you know, it's important to recognize what, if you know, we just went over what some of these symptoms are that we need to keep an eye out. If you're seeing those symptoms, then, you know, kind of drop them down so that when you're seeing the doctor, um, you're able to communicate that. Um, it's important for you to not diagnose, but you know, to be concerned and write down the, the but don't assume that you know, oh yeah, that's a depression and they should be taking this medication. <laughs> <laughs> we're all, we're all gonna be doctors now. <laughs> and then open communication is really important. You know, try to op have an open discussion, dialogue with the individual, your loved one. Um, Discuss relapse planning. What relapse planning is, is let's say you've had a major depression and you're better now. You know, what's the plan in case something, you know, some of the symptoms start popping up again? Um, you know, we've had people who had a major <coughs> depression and, you know, they start realizing, okay, when, when, like I have someone who says, okay, when I start looking at my checkbook three, four times a day, something's coming up again. You know, the depression's starting to show its, uh, its face again. So sometimes there's a few symptoms that show up early on, and if you become aware of yourself or aware of your loved one, 
um, then you can try to uh, adjust that person's, um, you know, their 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 routine, or maybe even talk to the doctor about medication or whatever. Um, exercise, for instance, for some people is very very important to keep them healthy, keep them the, from medicate from depression to be um, getting worse. So. Again, just being aware of the symptoms and when they start popping up, you know, that's when you, you try to hit it early on. Help older adults communicate with a health, uh, with a health provider. So if you have someone in your life who has symptoms of depression, your role could be helping them to jot down what in, in a notebook what your concerns are or their concerns are so that when they go to the doctor, it's written down so they don't have to remember. I don't know about you, but when I walk into a doctor's office, somebody is older, it doesn't mean you can't talk to them about depression. As a matter of fact, they may be more open to talking about it than a younger person. So it's really important to not assume that you can't communicate and that they can't learn. And you know what, if you have somebody in your family that has Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, it's not unusual or it's not impossible that they also have depression. You can still treat the depression even though somebody has dementia. Um, you know, if, if anything, it might help their functioning. If you, we had uh, one woman who, um, I was doing the, this talk in the, it was an adult day program, and the family members were coming in for the talk, and one woman said, you know, um, now that I'm hearing all of these symptoms, you know, my mother has Alzheimer's, and I didn't think I should come to this talk because you know, this isn't about Alzheimer's and dementia, it's about depression, but now that I'm hearing you talk, I think my mother has depression in addition to the Alzheimer's. I'm taking her to the doctors next week and I'll talk to the doctor about it. So a few weeks later I see her and she said, yes, I brought her to the doctor and I told the doctor that I think my mother has de depression. And guess what the doctor said? No. no, no, he's got all. She's got Alzheimer's. So what did she say? What did this woman do? She took out her notes. Good and for she her. Said, <laughs> she said, well, "Yeah, I know my mother has Alzheimer's, but I, you know, she's doing this. She's not sleeping. She's not. You know, her appetite's gone. Um, you know, she she doesn't want to go to day program as much. I have to kind of force her to go. Uh, I really think there's some depression there." And so the doctor said, hmm, maybe you have a point. You spend more time with your mother than I do. You know, let's, let's see if we can do about it. So he started her on a very low dose of an antidepressant. And guess what happened? She got better. She, she started sleeping better. Her appetite came back. Um, she was still confused. Didn't know where she was. <laughs> but she was smiling. So it's, 
just because somebody has dementia, you know, that's another takeaway today. You can still treat depression. You, and, and depression can still have a negative effect on someone who's got Alzheimer's. So just keep that in mind. Um, so what can the older adult do? Um, so the, the, if, you know, if, if it's you you're concerned about or, or an older person, recognize, making sure that they recognize their symptoms. If they know, you know, they start checking their checkbook all the time, that that's a sign for them. That's a sign, you know, in their particular case, you know, they need to do something about it. Talk to the healthcare provider to adjust medical and psychotropic meds. Um, you know, maybe they're not on any anti antidepressants and maybe, you know, um, or maybe they are and it needs to be changed. Um, know what causes the symptoms to get worse. Again, not all depression is caused by bad things that happen in your life or stress, but sometimes having stress in your life can make it worse, right, or make depression appear. So uh, like an example is we, I had one person who around the holidays she'd always get really, really depressed, which is not unusual because, you know, because of the seasonal affective disorder thing. But also she would say, it was, it's so stressful for me every holiday with my family. You know, we have to get them together in a big group and I don't feel comfortable and I never, you know. And so the plan for her for that year was to only go to some of those gatherings, not feel like she had to go to all of them. And because she was able to kind of limit those stressful situations, she didn't feel so depressed. So sometimes if something, if you know what causes the, the symptoms to, to come or the, uh, the, uh, the stress, you know, try to work to relieve those stress. Or sometimes even exercise and, and changing your diet can help have a positive effect. You know, depression, there isn't only like a one quick fix. If somebody has depression, so oftentimes it's like the few things that they need to do in their, and it might be psychotherapy, it might be medication, it might be exercising, it might be changing who they hang out with, you know, so, so it's, it's not just one um, cure, it's, it's looking at a, a bunch of things that can be helpful. I think it's important too to tell people, to empower them to be able to say no. Yes. There's so many demands upon people, especially people that are elderly and live alone, they feel they want to fill their day, mm -hmm. make plans for them, and all these social events, and it just gets so overwhelming that they don't feel that they can say no. And it's important to know how much is on your plate without yeah. being overwhelmed. Yeah. It's okay to say no. Yeah, and to have some control over you know, what you, you can do and you can't do. Yes, absolutely. And that's hard, to, it's hard to learn. Sometimes you learn the hard way. <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, that's a very hard thing to say no. Yeah, and sometimes you'll have um, you know people like even the middle-aged people who are trying to work full time and take care of uh, a parent and take care of yeah, children like, and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And it can it can be overwhelming. So sometimes you have to say no to some of those things too. Okay, um, take advantage of support persons. Like you know, if you if you have someone who can help you identify when. You start showing some signs that can be helpful, um, and develop a relapse plan. Let's talk. Um, spend a few minutes now talking about um, suicide concerns, because I, because oftentimes that's that doesn't show up with everybody who has depression, but sometimes it does, and you, we need to be aware of it. 
So 90% um, of people who die by suicide, 90% of them, when they look back at people who, had, who, who died by suicide, um, had either some form of mental illness, such as major depression, or they had some type of substance abuse um, issue. And the message there is that there, if somebody does have depression, it's important to treat that depression. Um, you know, so we can do something to help prevent suicide by treating depression. Um, the, the group that has the highest rate of suicide of any other group is people over the age of 65, particularly uh, white men over the age of 80, 85, actually the highest, the highest uh, risk. Um, so, and the higher, uh, if someone is older, single, widowed, or divorced, that puts them also at a higher risk. Now, when I say risk, I don't mean, it's almost like, I, I like to compare it to, you know, what's the risk of somebody having a heart attack or experiencing a heart attack? Well, people that, some of the symptoms that, or some of the conditions that put somebody at a higher risk for, for heart attack, for instance, might be, you know, poor diet, smoking, overweight, not exercising, a family, a uh, history of family. Cholesterol. High cholesterol and not you know doing anything about it. So those are just because somebody has all of those some of those conditions doesn't mean that they're going to have a heart attack, right? People who are at higher risk for suicide it doesn't mean that they're going to get suicidal. It just it kind of you just need to be more aware. It just makes you you need to be more concerned. So when you have um, older men, for instance, uh, I used we used to think that oh well they're seeing their doctor they'll be fine. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be safe. So, you know, if you have a feeling that somebody may be thinking about suicide or may be experiencing suicidal thoughts, what's one of the what's one of the first things you should do? Ask them if they have a plan. Ask them. Talk, talk to them about it. Yeah. And come right out and ask them and ask them if they have a plan. If they have a plan, they need to be concerned. And need to make sure they're not left alone. What do you mean? Well, so like with men, if they have a gun in the house or if they're not taking their medications as um, prescribed, they're overdosing or if they're not taking them and hoarding them and they go to sleep, then they have hoarded medicine, they might take it all at once. So if they have a plan, if they have a plan, if they, it's one thing to say, I, just, I, I would like to die, but I'd like to be it be, to be go over, to but you have the plan to make it happen. You know that's when we need to really intervene and and, and make sure they're safe. Okay. Okay. Um, what's that? I still don't understand. Um, so how if they thought out reasonably that now I have this gun, I'm going to get yeah. the ammunition for it, yeah. and tonight I'm going to kill myself. So if they have, the if they have a plan to. to to move ahead and do something to kill themselves, yeah. We need to, we need to intervene. We need to keep them safe. Okay. Um, older, older men are at higher risk. 33% um, of older men who saw their primary care physician, so of men, when, of the all, people over the age of 65, older white men over the age of 65, when they would look back, they found that a you know, pretty high percentage of them had seen their doctor that week. And I say this not to say, no, I'm not saying don't see your doctor. <laughs> what I'm saying, the reason I say that is 
if you know someone, if you're concerned that somebody may be suicidal or maybe thinking of suicide, and let's say they saw their doctor this week, don't think, oh, they saw their doctor, they'll be safe. You know, don't assume that just because they saw their doctor, they'll be safe. Because oftentimes, when they, you know, what they might have gone over a whole bunch of other things in the doctor's office, but you know, the, they didn't talk about whether or not the person was depressed or was suicidal. Um, so that's not uh, a sign that the person will be okay. If you feel, if you're concerned about someone, you go out and ask them. You know, don't, don't, don't sit on it. Um, so New Hampshire. Uh, is very much like the rest of the country in terms of, you know, the rate of suicide. We're a little bit higher than the average as a state. Vermont as well. Anybody here from Vermont? Okay, well, Vermont as well. Vermont is the same. Okay, these these uh, statistics are, are for U.S. The U.S. is the um, light green and the dark green is New Hampshire. But Vermont is very similar to New Hampshire. It's actually a little, bit, a little bit higher. The rate is a little bit higher in Vermont than in New Hampshire. But it's still just a little bit above the average. Um, and, and why do you think that may be? Hunting culture. Hunting culture, so it's a more of a rural uh, area. Winter. Longer winter. Isolated. Isolated, yeah. Be more isolated yes. because okay. to get from here to there, you've got yeah. to have so you're more anymore. isolated, more by yourself. Um, economics. Economics. Not getting medical attention, not being able to afford medical Access attention. to medical care, access to care. Yeah. Stigma. The stigma. Live free or die in New, in New Hampshire. <laughs> it's very, probably very similar in Vermont. Yeah. The hunting culture. Also, um, drinking problems too. What's that? Drinking too. That's exactly what I was going to say. Substance abuse, substance abuse uh, concerns. Because what happens when somebody, let's say somebody is, you know, slightly, you know, thinking of suicide, and then they drink, they're they're they become more disinhibited, you know. They, so they may be more able, you know, apt to act on it if they're if they're um, intoxicated. Yeah. Yeah. So th that's a very good point. Substance abuse is higher there. Um, Do you think with, I mean, we look at Obamacare is in more people are getting access to health care. Do you think these might change somewhat I, eventually? I not? would hope so. I would hope yeah. that with education, I mean, you're all here, you know, becoming more familiar with what some of the risk factors are, you know, knowing that, you know, every, sometimes it can make a difference whether or not you ask somebody, are you okay, you know? You know, so reaching out to others, um, you know, all of those factors, I hope that we can reduce this, um, you know, these statistics. So it can, it can be helpful, I think. You know, it's not just one, one thing. A lot of times, you know, suicide is a very complicated. Um, I think we can, maybe we have more geriatric, a higher geriatric population mm -hmm. in yeah. New Hampshire and Vermont. Yes, we do. Our younger people are leaving to go to more industrial, mm -hmm. technological right. cities for right. employment. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of people that come up here to retire. Yeah. 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 Also, New Englanders tend to have this stoicism. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, you know, we don't talk about it. So That's right. We don't talk about it. But the problem is, if you don't talk about it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a bigger problem. Yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Talking about it 
putting it on the table can be really helpful and reduce the risk. Okay. All right. If you, what do you think? How would you think uh, compared to, let's say, New York or Connecticut? Where do you think Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, and Vermont are as far as the rate of suicide? Any thoughts? I would say we're probably a little higher. Ours are a little higher. Yeah, you're right. Simply because of, of, For all of the, the isolation of yeah. things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Surrounded by people. More people. Yeah. Alaska, Alaska is very high. Yeah. You know, the Rocky Mountains, where people are more isolated, they're very high, too. Uh, yeah. So, so it is, I was surprised when I first heard that New, we actually have a higher rate than New York. I, you know, I was thinking New York, Connecticut. They, should, they, they just shoot each other. They don't shoot yeah. themselves. <laughs> should not laugh, but I know. Okay. Not funny, but sounds like you think that I know. Uh, this uh, this uh, uh, chart just shows this, uh, the suicide. This is for age. All, everybody in this is over 65. Um, but the blue are men, and the red are females, uh, women. And um, so non-Hispanic white are much higher, as you can see, are at a higher risk um, than, than um, like non-Hispanic black, for instance, or Hispanic. Um, so. That is one thing white men are, we don't want them to be better at, but that's, that is, you know, one of the things, one of the concerns, right? Um, so some of the risk factors include divorced, widowhood, uh, single status, um, especially men uh, uh, who've been, who've lost a partner within the past six months, uh, lower socioeconomic status. Again, even though that's listed as a risk factor, doesn't mean that people who have High socioeconomic status are not, you know, it, it can happen to anyone, right? Nobody's immune. Uh, retirement with few other interests is also puts somebody at risk. So if somebody all of a sudden stops working, you know, the, their life's work, and then all of a sudden they don't have, feel like they don't have purpose. Uh, Life-changing physical disorders, threat of extreme dependency or institutionalization, extreme isolation. Um, estrangement from family and friends. So again, the more support you have around you, the better off you'll be. Marked feelings of guilt and inadequacy. Um, delirium, so if you're sick, physically sick, and you're not thinking um, clearly sometimes, that puts you at a higher risk. Agitation, alcoholism, uh, painful and debilitating and or terminal illness. One of the things I, um, that's very important is if there's a change, if, if somebody, if there's a change in somebody's mood, it's really important to try to figure out what's going on. That's usually a sign. I mean, you have some people who, like somebody who's, you know, if, if you see a grumpy old man, for instance, were they a grumpy young man? If they were a grumpy young man, well, we don't need to worry. But if they weren't, if there's a change, then what is it? You know, what's going on? Something, something, <coughs> something different is happening. So warning signs is like, again, you know, we're talking about person, the risk factors for, uh, for heart attack. Warning signs is like, the, let's say you're having a pain up, your, up and down your arm and you, you're sweating. I mean, those are, you gotta do something. You know, that's, that's a, we're at the point where we need to take action, right? So warning signs for suicide is when the signs are there that somebody is really at very, very high risk and we need to do something to protect them. 
Um, so if they're threatening to hurt themselves or to kill themselves or somebody else, we know we need to act now. Uh, if they're actually talking about wanting to die, talking about death a lot, uh, feeling rage or uncontrollable anger, um, if they you know, constantly say they have seen no reason to live, increased alcohol or drug use, <coughs> withdrawing from friends, family, or society, if they start giving away their possessions without any reason, um, that's often a sign we need to be we need to be asking questions and make sure they're safe. So if somebody is suicidal, what, what do you do? What do you do? Well, you talk to them, express your concerns. As soon as you express your concern or you talk to someone, you're not going to make them more at risk. You, you might even make them less at risk. You know, you might help to reduce the, the risk. Determine if the person has access to means. You were talking to them. Do they have access? If they say, you know, I, I really don't want to live, I mean, I would like to, um, you know, they have a plan and, and they have access to a plan, then you need to act fast. You can't. You need to intervene. Don't leave them alone. Make sure they get in touch with professionals. Um, if in an urgent situation, you know, understand that mental health centers, uh, um, at least in New Hampshire, and I'm not sure, I think that might be the case in Vermont as well, you know, they have 24-hour lines, so you can call each of the community mental health centers in New Hampshire 24 hours a day and uh, be able to talk to someone. Not sure, I think that might be the case in Vermont as well, although it's not sure. Okay, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I'll need to research that and get back to you. <laughs> um, and if, if, if someone is in imminent danger, then, you know, calling 911 sometimes may be indicated. Restrict lethal means. Take it away. You know, I know, you know, both Vermont and Maine are with a lot of hunters, um, and I've often been told by people when they come to the session, don't tell me to take my gun out of the house. If somebody is in the house, is depressed, and they're expressing being suicidal, then you take the gun out of the house. You really need to, to you need to take away a, um, the means. Doesn't mean that it, it'll stay out of the house forever, but if somebody's at risk, then you need to take away the lethal means, okay? It could be, um, you know, oftentimes it's a gun, and, and 75, between 70 and 75% of the deaths by suicide in New Hampshire and in Vermont are by gun. And that's both long, you know, rifle or short. Fifty percent are long, so it doesn't matter what size mm -hmm. the gun. So just just be aware of that. That if somebody is at risk, take the take the lethal means away. Um, firearm in the home increases the risk when somebody's depressed um, by five percent of a suicide. And there are other means: knives, medications, poisons. If somebody's if <coughs> somebody's planning on Overdosing, for instance, we need to make sure that the, you know they don't have access to a lot of pills. So those are the types of things to think about. Any questions or thoughts? Sir? Okay. It's going to get some more. Okay. There's some right behind you there. I know. Um, what if a suicidal individual refuses treatment? You need to consult with a mental health professional and don't leave them alone. And sometimes um, someone, the reason, if somebody has never had treatment, for instance, it might be very 
scary for them to think about going in. So sometimes even offering to go in with them to the first appointment. You know, just getting them through the door and then eventually, you know, they'll, they'll be more comfortable on their own. So sometimes it's as simple as that, is, is accompanying somebody to their first appointment to make sure they get there. Because um, that can be such a scary thing for some people to, to walk through that door. And something in, in New Hampshire called complaint and prayer, but it's, all, it's when somebody is um, needs to be admitted against their will, if they're not making any clear decisions and are at high risk, you know, then you need to get involved. Um, through, you can do, do, do this through the community mental health center or having somebody go to the uh, emergency room where they'll have a, um, someone come in from the mental health centers to assess and get them. If they, if they need to be admitted against their will, then there's a process to go through. So in that situation, like if you walked in on something, <coughs> you called 911, mm -hmm. and they can't restrain them, do you get the police involved? Um, if, if who can't restrain them? I don't, I, like, like if you walked in and you saw that someone was, was going to commit suicide, and so you can't talk them down if you call 911, but the emergency people can't come and they can't control, they can't confine him or restrain them. Do, do the, police the police can. The police can. If somebody is do at you risk. Do call the police first or do you call 911 first? Well, 911 would, would be the police. Yeah. Would be the police to come in. Could be the same oh, thing. I thought it would be emergency medical. Oh, okay. When you call 911, police come. As well as uh, ambulance, also. Ambulance. Oh, okay, I've never yeah. called nine one one. Okay. Yeah, when you call, when you talk to someone and you're telling them what you know, what you, what's going on, and they'll they're going to be sending in um, both. Police always respond to nine one one. Okay, I didn't know yeah. that. All right. Yeah, and the police do have um, the right to restrain right. someone who is a, going to be hurting either themselves or hurting somebody else. They I, they can. Yeah, and it's and it's to keep that person safe. Mm -hmm. Their goal is to keep. Everyone safe. Yeah, they had the paramedics, so they've come the other way. You call the police, yeah. anything like that, and Hanover, anyway. Right. So the police will come, and then they'll, you know, sometimes a fire truck will come, and then the ambulance will come. <laughs> Everybody. It, depending on what the situation is, you know, when you talk to the, if they don't know, let's say you dial one nine one one, and you're not able to talk to the, to the person who's answering, um, they'll send them all. <laughs> yeah, the whole shebang. Oh, okay. Yeah. So remember, these are your takeaway here. We're done a little early, but I, you know, just want to some of the takeaways. Depression is not a normal part of aging. Remember that skier, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not normal. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And what, but when it does happen, you need to treat it. Why do days go so fast when we are older? <laughs> it does, it does, they do seem to go by. It's not enough time. I know. To do this is amazing. Yeah. Uh, treatment, depression is very treatable. That's the other thing to remember. Treating depression improves the treatment of physical disorders and vice versa. They, sometimes they remember this, that you know, you know, like the cogwheel, they, they kind of make each other, egg each other on, and so you need to, to address both. Um, know the risks and warning signs of suicide and take action, meaning, you know, if you're concerned about someone, reach out, talk to that person, and make sure they're safe. It's everybody's responsibility. Uh, family and caregivers um, do make a difference. So if you are a caregiver or a family member or a loved one who has depression, 
your involvement in the situation can make a big difference. Okay, do we have any questions or any comments? Or, uh, there are some resources listed here. Um, has, has anybody here ever heard of NAMI or National Alliance of Mental Illness? Yeah, they, it's, um, they have a lot of information on their website. So there's NAMI in New Hampshire, Vermont has NAMI. Uh, and then there's a national website. So if you look up, look at these websites and you can get information about different types of disorders, find out more information, for instance, about depression, about bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder. Would, if I'm living in Vermont, if I would call one of these, could they, do you think they'd be able to then transfer me to the similar? Yes, uh, actually, if you, if you reach the, um, if, yes, Yes, mm -hmm. or you can just check online for NAMI, the, the national NAMI. Yeah. And when you look at the national NAMI website, they'll have you, they'll have, um, you can click on the different states. Okay. So you can get uh, connected that way. So I'm um, thinking more of like New Hampshire Community Mental Health Centers. If I, if for some reason someone called them that doesn't live in the state of New Hampshire, I would think, I would hope that they'd be able to refer you to whatever state so. you do I live in that so. they would. In the same way that if you call, you know, the Service Link uh, office in New Hampshire, they would be able to direct you to a number to call in, in Vermont. They might not be able to help your situation. No, but, you know, no, no I was just call. looking, I was just thinking if, you know, if something came up, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I had this list, but I didn't have PowerPoint uh, Vermont numbers, which yeah. I would need to have living in Vermont. I think if you look in your phone book. It's a possibility, that's, that's a possibility, yeah. They would have, you know where they had the emergency numbers? Mm -hmm. Okay. And I have a phone book, and or, you know, do you have a computer? Yeah. You can Google, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, look up me uh, Vermont mental health resources and then see what comes up. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, to turn the computer on and get it going and go to that. You don't have time. I may <laughs> not have the, uh, I mean, I can think of a situation that, oh, yeah. that there's not that much time. Yeah. Just call 911. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're concerned about somebody's life, definitely 911. Yeah. Definitely. If, if it's if that situation, if it's a bad yeah. uh, dire, yeah. Okay, so these are this, this, so we have national resources as well. Um, there's specific um, again; these are national. There's American Association of Geriatric Psychiatry, um, the um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I mean, I, a lot of these are, are national national um, resources. Again, more national resources. S SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a lot of information on their website that can be very valuable. Okay, uh, but you all, you have all of those in your handouts. Yeah. So you, you, you can Thank keep you. these handouts. That's great. You can keep that. Mm -hmm. um, and if you could also fill out the, the evaluation form, that would be really helpful. But I'd be happy to stay and if anybody has any specific questions. Do you think statistics are changing on you? Now, like on TV, or you know, you're in the city, you go on the subways, you see billboards, more and more advertising, bringing it out in the open that you know suicide.
depression things. Mm -hmm. I think there's more, definitely more awareness yes. <clears throat> and definitely um, working towards reducing the stigma associated with um, yes. mental health. That, I think that's moving forward. We still have a long way to go, yes. but I think it is getting better. Um, uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, I think we're, we, we need to re recognize that we're all, we're all a part of this and that the brain is connected to the body and if the brain's not, you know, experiencing depression, it's that, you know, that is a cognitive yeah, issue. Absolutely. And it's all interrelated. I think there's more and more awareness of that, of how mental health and physical health really go hand in hand. And, uh, and we need to think of health in general 